Hey everybody, you are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church for the church. My name is Kirk Miller, and today we have with us a very special guest. We have Dr. Richard B. Gaffin Jr., or Richard Gaffin. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Gaffin. Thank you. Privileged to be with you. Yeah, and I'm very excited uh, to have Dr. Gaffin on the podcast today. His work, as I was telling him before we started recording, has been really helpful for me, especially as he sort of stands in in many ways within the uh, carrying on a lot of the thinking of the Dutch Reformed tradition. That's been very helpful for me. Uh, If you're not familiar with Dr. Gaffin, he is Professor Emeritus of Biblical and Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, where he taught for over 40 years until his retirement in 2010. So he's retired at this point. Uh, He has his ordination in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC. He is the author of several books. Many of those books focus on Pauline theology. That's kind of his focal point, especially Paul's doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of union with Christ, resurrection, inaugurated eschatology. And so if you hear that word inaugurated eschatology and you've been listening to the podcast, you'll know I just did an interview with Dr. Gregory Beale, which is a former colleague of Dr. Gaffin's on the subject of inaugurated eschatology. And so today we're really going to be diving in to a more specific element of uh, inaugurated eschatology with Dr. Gaffin. And we're going to be talking about his book, which was very helpful for me when I read it in seminary. The book is called Resurrection and Redemption, a study in Paul's soteriology. Soteriology just means doctrine of salvation. This was published, I believe, first published with Baker in 1978, about 160 pages in length. And so let me begin with this question, Dr. Gaffin. For those who are listening to this and they hear those words, Paul's soteriology, inaugurated eschatology, resurrection, all these big categories sound super academic. Why should the average uh, believer, the listener here, care about this topic, Paul's theology of resurrection? Why should we care? Well, right. uh, To get to the heart of the matter immediately, if you have Bible on hand, look at 1 Corinthians 15, 17. Uh, there Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, uh, our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. So the, our salvation as it's, at its heart uh, depends on Christ uh, being resurrected three days after he died on the cross for our sins. Another uh, focus statement uh, that you find in Paul is uh, in the summary of the gospel that he gives at the end of Romans 4, uh, where he says that Christ was delivered up for our sins, our transgressions, and raised for our justification. So, the resurrection is essential to our being justified, that is, being declared righteous in God's sight and uh, able to be at peace with him. Yeah. And and Paul is, you know, wrote a significant portion of our New Testament. For Paul, resurrection is such a vitally important subject as he thinks about the doctrine of salvation. So a huge part of our uh, Christian canon 
Uh, and as much as Paul is also like a huge articulator of what the gospel is as Jesus arrives in the New, New Testament, so much of it then is bound up with Paul's understanding of resurrection. So if we want to understand the Christian gospel, we really, we re- really do need to understand what Paul has to say about resurrection. I want to ask uh, a sort of a, a big, broad, general question to kind of start us off into the subject then. Um, what did the resurrection of Christ mean or signify for Paul? What role did it play in his theological understanding? Yeah, that is a, a very broad question. Uh, it could be gotten at from a, a number of angles. Uh, but, well, I think in a way we've already touched on it. Uh, no resurrection, no salvation. Uh, and that, uh, you can look at it, um, of course, whenever we speak of the resurrection, by implication, we're bringing the death of Christ into view. And, uh, in other words, uh, resurrection uh, implies being brought to life from death. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's easy. Uh, I think any one of us uh, believers, as believers, can see that if um, if Christ is having died on the cross, remains dead, is not resurrected, uh, then our salvation has not been accomplished. Satan, as you might put it, has won. Um, That is, sin and death have triumphed. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, uh, then there's no hope for any one of us, any believer, of, of being delivered from the ultimate curse on our sin, which is death. The wages of sin is death. Uh, Romans 6.23, familiar verse to uh, all of us. But the gift of God is eternal life. And that eternal life is, uh, in other words, for Paul, the resurrection life uh, that Christ has. Uh, that's rep- the resurrection life that Christ has merited uh, for his church, for believers, uh, by his death on the cross. So um, I guess those are things I would stress initially to your question. Yeah, and we'll get into some of these other elements more um, as we go on, hopefully here. The other, the other thing that comes to my mind is that for Paul, the resurrection of Christ is also the the opening up, the the arrival, the embarking of the new creation order in the very person of Christ and therefore for all who are united to him. This will be a big theme with some of these other questions as we as we go on. But this is really where it overlaps with the idea of inaugurated eschatology for my listeners who listen to the conversation I had with G.K. Beale, where the resurrection is really the dawning of the of the new creation in Christ for all those in him. Which really brings up then some of these uh, next questions I have for you, Dr. Gaffin. Uh, the next one I'd like to ask is, what is the connection between Jesus's resurrection and ours? Yeah, 
That is a key question. And uh, I can take us immediately to what is the central text. And that is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Uh, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 20, uh, the chapter as a whole is uh, is is, pre is is what Paul says is based on the connection, the inseparable connection that there is between Christ's resurrection and our resurrection. Christ, of course, is unique in his being raised, but his resurrection is not an isolated event. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul uses uh, the metaphor of Christ being the first fruits of to complete the metaphor by implication are a harvest of resurrection and that resurrection harvest uh that is inaugurated by Christ and there you know uh, uh Kirk you've used the language of inaugurated uh, eschatology what inaugurates the eschatology most pointedly is Christ's resurrection the resurrection is concretely, specifically an eschatological event. It, it brings uh, eternal life. And so it inaugurates uh, the, the great resurrection harvest that believers will share in. Uh, uh, we already share in that in, in, in this life, and we will share in it bodily. That's what um, Christ, uh, Paul uh, stresses, particularly in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, uh, at, in our bodily resurrection at Christ's return. Yeah. And so what you're saying there is Christ's resurrection, as you said, it's not, Christ is not an isolated individual. As some people have said, he's a public person. And notably there in 1 Corinthians, Paul is comparing Christ to Adam. So in the way that Adam's sin brought death, so Christ's resurrection brings resurrection for all those in him. All, all of humanity is, is, is incorporated into Adam and so experiences death. Or if you want to, if we wanted to compare this to Romans 5, uh, we get, we're condemned in Adam. And so in Christ, Paul says there, we're justified in Christ. But in 1 Corinthians, now it's, uh, dealing more with the subject of death and resurrection. In Adam, we die. In Christ, we're raised. And so Jesus is a public person. And just to recap for my listeners here, when we say inaugurated eschatology, again, eschatology has to do with the things at the end. Um, we tend to think of that as, you know, when Christ comes again and really eschatology proper, which is true. But the New Testament has the perspective that though that that end time era has already dawned in the coming of Christ, uh, in as much as the end time era was associated with these realities of salvation that Christ has also brought. Now, Dr. Gaffin, let me press on that one a little bit more. You mentioned how Christ's resurrection connects to ours in terms of our future physical resurrection, but there are also passages like Colossians 3, which say that we've been raised with Christ, or Ephesians 2, which talks about how we've been raised with Christ, some of these passages. Romans 6, there's a sense in which Paul can speak of us having been raised even presently, or something that's occurred in the past. What's that all about, and how does Christ's resurrection uh, connect to ours in that sense. Yeah, I think 
in in getting at the heart of that question to make uh, really concrete what it means when Paul says we have been raised or we are already raised with Christ, uh, it's important to recognize that we're now, that's true because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And um, uh, maybe um, it will be helpful to your listeners uh, how uh, the book that we're talking about, Resurrection and Redemption, uh, that was based on the doctoral work that I did at, at Westminster Seminary. And as I was getting into that, um, uh, doing that work, I started out wanting to explore Paul's understanding of the Holy Spirit, what it means to be spiritual. And what I uh, found was that that brought me uh, into um, the area of Paul's teaching on resurrection because, uh, well, as, yeah, so many different passages come to mind. Uh, uh, Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead uh, dwells in you, uh, he who raised Jesus from the dead will make alive your mortal bodies by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. And that's a key pointer to the fact that the Holy Spirit, uh, you can't separate uh, resurrection and Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit to be in our lives presently is to experience the resurrection life of Christ. As it might be put very pointedly, uh, life in the spirit is resurrection life for Paul. Mm. You can't, you can't, uh, you can't separate those or you, you're bound to identify them. Uh, the resurrection of Christ, uh, uh, brings, empowers Christ in the spirit. Um, I don't know if we're going to discuss this later on down, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, that as the life given, that as the last Adam, Christ has become the life-giving spirit. Uh, in his resurrection, it's, it's important to see, uh, Christ is transformed by the spirit. He goes from being in a state of humiliation to being glorified in a state of exaltation. And that consists in receiving the spirit uh, in a way that is climactic, ultimate, eschatological, to use the more technical term. And uh, that gift of the spirit that Christ uh, receives in his resurrection he pours out on the church uh for the church's once for all possession on the day of pentecost well i've said a lot of things there but that um that gets at the that to, to your question um we are raised with christ because we have uh by god's gracious working in us he has transformed us from, as Paul says, the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the son that he loves. And he has done that uh, 
by sharing, uh, uniting us to Christ so that we share in his resurrection life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those were you're already touching on some things that I wanted. I definitely did want to ask. I had written down to ask. Um, so is it, is it fair to, to think of it this way? With Christ's resurrection, there is a, a shift from what we call sort of Christ's state of humiliation into a state of exaltation. Having been resurrected, he sort of entered into this state that is characterized by uh, the, the the work of the work of new creation, the condition of new creation in which the spirit is operative. Not that the spirit wasn't, of course, at work in his ministry prior. We see that he's anointed with the spirit, but there is a shift that occurs that when Jesus is resurrected, he is actually embarked into a. Um, I'm a little bit grasping for words here, uh, but he's embarked into that new creation order where the spirit. Uh, defines what it means to be in that order. And in as much as then we are united to Christ by the Spirit, we too partake in that same uh, new covenant ministry characterized by the Spirit, new creation uh, reality characterized by the Spirit. Is that a fair way to kind of describe what you're getting after? Would you state that differently? Uh, no, that's that's uh, quite helpful the way you put it. Um, uh, maybe I mentioned for... This would be demanding for uh, listeners, but I'm very much influenced in my understanding of Paul uh, by two uh, two authors of earlier uh, generation, Gerhardus Voss mm-hmm. and Herman Ritterboss. Yes, yes. Uh, who uh, and particularly Voss's Pauline eschatology. Uh, in producing that book, Boss wrote an essay, a uh, short title, The Eschatological Conception of the Holy Spirit in Paul. And that um, in, in, in other terms, the Holy Spirit in his working is an eschatological reality and power. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is, he is it's it's the language of uh actually it's the way the writer of hebrews puts it but it's a fair uh, way of uh of describing paul the holy spirit at work is the power of the age to come right that is the eschatological age you've already touched on it kirk in in uh, some of your comments uh the new creation Second Corinthians five seventeen has, in, in other words, the eschatological final order for creation has already begun in the death and resurrection of Christ, and will re- reach its its fullness uh, uh, in the eternal state that comes about at Christ's return. Yeah, those two same people, Gehirdus uh, Vas. Uh, Herman Ritterboss, his book, Paul, an outline of his theology, um, as well as Herman Bovink, I would say too, like those people have been really helpful for me yes. in understanding this. And, and, and this may feel really technical and jargony if you're listening to this, but think of it this way. The prophets in the Old Testament, they're anticipating the day when the spirit will be poured out. That for them is an end time reality where the, the old covenant had, um, 
it was inferior in the sense that it was a law written on tablets of stone. And Paul talks about how the new covenant will be, uh, the, the new covenant is a covenant in which the law is written on our hearts and that occurs by the actual indwelling of the spirit. And so Christ inaugurates that era by embarking into new creation existence through his resurrection. I thought that, I remember seeing a short little YouTube video that you did a while back. You probably don't remember this, but talking about that second Corinthians 517 passage where you made the point, you know, a lot of us are familiar with the King James translation. Everyone in Christ is a new creature, but you made the point that it, it is, it may be help, more helpful to, to, to render that everyone in Christ is new creation. That we are now not just new creatures individually, although that's true, um, but specifically we are made a part of this new creation order that has already dawned in Christ. So, yeah, just just to underline that, uh, Kirk, uh, if the way Second Corinthians uh, five seventeen, looking. Uh, uh, at the at the Greek text, the best way of rendering that uh, for ourselves in English is this: If anyone is in Christ, there is the new creation. Is uh, in other words, united. If anyone is in Christ, united to Christ, you are brought into the inaugurated new creation. Yeah. yeah and, and what's in back of that is very important uh, for understanding the, uh, the sort of the controlling structure of Paul's theology, uh, that as he looks at the whole of history from creation to its consummation, uh, he adapts, uh, actually it was a, uh, a distinction uh, present already uh, in intertestamental Second Temple uh, Judaism, but but faithful to the uh, revelation in the in the Old Testament. Uh, as you look at the whole of history from creation to consummation, uh, uh, there's a basic distinction between this age and the age to come. Uh, this age because of the entrance of sin into the creation, this age is marked uh, by sin and death, and sin, suffering, and death. The age to come is the eschatological or consummation order marked by uh, righteousness, deliverance from the curse on sin, and resurrection life and that's what uh paul is concerned as he brings the gospel to make clear is uh has been brought about by what has been accomplished once for all in the death and resurrection of christ yeah that's a super important thing to note too because i wouldn't want to lose anyone like that's been a big assumption in our conversation so far is that resurrection belongs to that age to come so in some ways, Jesus, you might think of Jesus's resurrection, like Paul says, it's the first fruit of a greater harvest. But the first fruit is actually, in some ways, separated from the harvest by this period of time, at least, uh, at least in terms of our physical resurrection at the end. And so it's kind of like a time capsule of Jesus's resurrection, this end time reality that's plopped into the middle 
of this current age, even though it's a feature of the age to come. It's sort of been plopped right into the current age. But in as much as we're united to Christ, we actually then are brought into that age as well, the age of new creation, the age of the spirit. Um, mm. And so I like even how uh, 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 Lad uh put it um he talked about in his book he says the he called it the presence of the future and that might be a helpful way to think about inaugurated eschatology is it's the present experience of future realities specifically salvation future salvation realities well since you brought up the um the the passage in first corinthians 15 45 uh it tells us that through jesus's resurrection christ serves as the last adam to whom believers shall be conformed. Since you already raised that, let me just poke at that a little bit more. That was something I wanted to talk about. How does Christ's resurrection enable him to serve as the last Adam, in according to this verse, what Paul's talking about here? Yeah, well, it's uh, as wrong. You Earlier, uh, you made reference to the Romans 5 passage, which is the other place where um, a Christ is in view as the last Adam. Um, in the contrast between Christ and Adam, it's, it's implicit there in Romans 5. And um, what, um, um, so Christ, it's, it's, is, it's, Christ is the last Adam from the alpha point of his incarnation. He is mm-hmm. the last Adam through the course of his earthly ministry uh, as uh, climaxing in, as Paul says, his obedience to death, even death on the cross, Philippians 2, uh, 8. And um, so, and and in, in doing that, he is reversing the concept. By his life culminating in his death on the cross, he reverses the consequences of uh, Adam's sin and the implication of, of all human beings in in as sinners, uh, so that what happens in this Adamic identity in the resurrection, as Paul says, he became the life giving spirit, uh, and that um, uh, it's it's. Uh, <laughs> This brings up a point that has been a bit of a frustration to me over the years, um, and that concerns our English Bible translations that most of us uh, evangelicals will be using, the ESV, the NIV, uh, the New American Standard Bible. They all have a lowercase s there. Mm, really? Uh, and it should be... Um, capitalized um uh, the one current translation that does that at least that i found is the new living translation Hmm. that's not a translation that i would uh, call my favorite but uh i think they are to uh, that is to be uh, appreciated that they see that the reference there is to the person of the spirit right So Paul is saying here that in his resurrection, Christ became what he was not before. He became not just the spirit, but 
the spirit as life giving. And um, just to address uh, uh, immediately a question that I can anticipate coming up in listeners' mind, this is not a statement that is uh, denying the distinction, the Trinitarian distinction between the second and third persons, uh, between the Son and the Spirit. Uh, but it's describing what is true in terms of Christ's Adamic identity, that is, uh, the human nature that he assumes. And that what Paul, uh, as I like to put it, what Paul, when Paul makes this uh, flat assertion, Christ, as last Adam became life-giving spirit, uh, that there's now, given the, uh, the resurrection, uh, there is a, a, a functional equation or unity between Christ and the Spirit, uh, which did not exist prior to the resurrection. Uh, and that, uh, uh, the way I like to put it, uh, another way of putting it is that uh, 1 Corinthians 15.45 uh, is Paul's one-sentence commentary on what took place on the day of Pentecost as uh, Peter in his uh, Pentecost sermon puts it that uh, uh, he was raised from the dead, he has ascended to the right hand of the Father of God and has poured out that which you uh, see and hear. I didn't quote that uh, exactly, but Paul, uh, Peter draws a link between resurrection, ascension, reception of the Spirit by Christ in his ascension, and then the giving of the Spirit by uh, the exalted Christ as he has received it as the great gift for the church. So, um, yeah, uh, all right, I've gone on quite a bit there. <laughs> I don't know how you want to pick up on that. But, uh uh, let me encourage uh, our um, Bible-believing listeners, when you see 1 Corinthians 15.45, think capital S. <laughs> yeah, let me just read that passage, too, because that might be helpful. This is, this is one that I think can immediately catch people as a little bit odd. Uh, yeah. It says, thus it is written, this is Paul talking. And again, this is in the context of Paul talking about resurrection, our future physical resurrection as believers grounded in Christ's resurrection. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural then the spiritual, so Adam, then Christ. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. So as we've borne the image of Adam, in other words, a man of dust, so now we will also be conformed to Christ, the man of heaven. That's exactly what then Paul says in verse 49. Just as we, we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I think what oftentimes trips people up with this verse is then they pit, like with Adam, we are sort of physical beings, and with Jesus, now we are going to be like spiritual beings. But in the whole flow of the argument, he's been talking about how we will be physically raised. So spirit here is not somehow immaterial. That's not what Paul means. But he means 
the a resurrection existence in which the spirit is is so de- the holy spirit that is capital s is so defining of our existence of our very experience of what it means to be raised um and and fully alive before god um yeah the, uh, could i uh, that's totally. so important the point you've just been making and uh tying into uh just to add to that when you look in verse 44 uh the one uh the 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 adjective that paul uses to describe the resurrection body of christ and then the resurrection body that uh believers will have it's spiritual yeah and uh as you've been pointing out spiritual there is not uh the, saying that the resurrection body will be non-physical right. that uh and so that's come back as you capitalize spirit in verse 45 in verse 44 you should capitalize the uh adjective uh the s and the adjective spiritual to, to keep in mind that the uh the resurrection body is is our embodied existence brought to its eschatological perfection. Yeah, yeah, agreed. It should be capitalized to say not spiritual in the sense of immaterial, but spiritual in the sense of characterized by the spirit. It's similar to how like Paul and Corinthians will talk about the natural versus the spiritual man. Not it's not he's not comparing a physical versus immaterial, but the one who doesn't have the spirit versus the one who does have the spirit. Um and so maybe to kind of swing ourselves back around to the initial question that got us on this big trail is the idea of of Jesus's resurrection as connected to ours. Really you could and I, and I think your book may have helped me come with come up with this language. I don't know if you use this language, but this idea that in a, in a sense, so, uh, we are, we are united to Jesus and there's a sense in which our resurrection is, is awaiting us. Um, he's the first fruit of a greater harvest of resurrection. There's a sense of our physical resurrection, uh, awaiting us at his return. But there's also a sense which, which Paul can speak of us being raised now. Um, Romans six, uh, Colossians, uh, uh, three, um, other passage, Ephesians 2, or, or if we were to go to John's writing, he talks about how we have eternal life even now, sort of similar category, being born again. So there's a sense in which, um, we are raised sort of inwardly, spiritually speaking, um, and yet our physical bodies will still die and will need to be physically raised. So it's one resurrection that sort of occurs in two installments. Is, is how I've sort of, uh, articulated it. And I don't know if I've gotten that language from you, but this idea that we are, we are in, we're united to Christ and there's a sense in which we're raised with him now. Our baptism depicts that, as Paul says in Romans six. And yet there's also a sense in which we'll be raised in the future. Um, which brings up the doctrine of union with Christ. This has been sort of at the assumption behind most of our conversation here, but let's maybe trail back and discuss it. The doctrine of union with Christ is really important for understanding Paul's theology of resurrection in as much as that resurrection of Christ comes to be imparted to us, we might say, or maybe imparted isn't even the best language, but us being incorporated into his. So help us understand this, Dr. Gaffin. What is Paul's doctrine of union with Christ and what role does it play in his theology of resurrection? 
Yeah, well, it's 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 absolutely at the heart. Uh, I think it's come up in in earlier in our uh, interaction uh, that Jesus um, Christ uh, come into the world uh, uh, for our salvation is not a private person. He's a unique individual. He's God incarnate. But as that, he is always contemplated as one with the sinners who he has come to save. And um, so that the, uh, the union has a representative sense that comes out in, in Romans 5. But uh, what becomes effective is when we are united to Christ by faith, uh, and that, that establishes a spiritual bond in the sense of, as we've just been talking, the work of the Spirit, so that the union, uh, as Paul sees it, is uh, because it's spiritual work by the Holy Spirit, it's a vital or life union. Uh, Colossians uh, 3, uh, 4, uh, Christ is our life, Paul says. Uh, or as he says in the well-known Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So uh, it's 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 a representative union, in a, in the sense that Christ did for me, which I can't do for myself. He died for my sins, uh, but as uh, it is that, it also is a vital spiritual union. Uh, the language sometime uh, used uh, has been it's a mystical union. Uh, it's a mystical union in the sense uh, that it is brought about by the the secret and powerful activity of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So those are, I think, things that need to be stressed first. Yeah, and we've been focusing on resurrection. It lends us to focus on some of the positive elements that Christ gains. The other side uh, that's we've sort of been assuming is that in representing us, um, he there's also that sense in which he uh, his death is actually towards some of the negative aspects that we're saved from, not just what we're saved into, but what we're saved from. That he represents us in dying for sin, in dying to the power of sin, and so mm -hmm. that by being united to him, we actually go through the cross with him. We go through the judgment of God with him. Um, and, and our judgment is then cleared. And so we're used to thinking oftentimes as evangelicals, we're used to thinking in substitution language, Jesus died in my place. There's also union language, which is really, uh, the same reality, but maybe from a different angle. Um, I would say is, is that he's representing us. Yeah. Uh, he's doing things on our behalf. And so in as much as I'm united to him, union with Christ is this idea that what he achieves in his own person, all those who are united to him that then get connected to that and they experience that in him, similar to how we were all united to Adam, we might say, and we experience condemnation and death and such on account of our 
relation to him. So now we have been transferred and united to Christ instead and get what he achieves. Um, this leads then to explore a bigger, we open up a bigger door here to explore a whole range of things. Um, in the book, you argue that we ought to see Jesus's resurrection as the redemption of Christ. You, in the table of contents, it even says that I think like Christ's resurrection or the resurrection as the redemption of Christ, thereby accomplishing adoption, justification, sanctification, glorification, um, in himself and then by extension for all those united to him. Um, that could be a little bit of a confusing subject. Do you mind helping us understand what you mean by that? Yeah, because our salvation is really, um, as we've been bringing out in this discussion, our salvation is entirely bound up with our union with Christ. Uh, the benefits that we enjoy, um, which are, uh, to make a basic distinction, uh, forensic benefits, that is uh, concerning our standing, our status in be before God, whether we're guilty or not for our sin. Uh, and there are also benefits are transformative. Uh, that is renovative, uh, dealing with the effects of sin in our lives. And uh, uh, the, the reason I worked it out in, in, the, in the book the way I did is uh, take, for instance, our justification. That uh, amounts to, uh, that's at the heart of our understanding of salvation, uh, that we have uh, been freely forgiven our sins and that we have been reckoned or counted righteous before God. Uh, I think what ties that with when Paul says at the end of Romans 4.25, he was raised for our justification. It's because Christ's own resurrection was God's way of vindicating or, or declaring that Christ was the righteous one in whose righteousness we share. Uh, as he, um, as Paul says in second and first Timothy 316, um, he was, uh, he was justified in the spirit. That is by the Spirit's action in raising him from the dead. Uh, God is, the, the Father is declaring that uh, Christ has made satisfaction for sin. Uh, just backing up, you see, uh, at the end of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that Christ was made sin that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Uh, now that, of course, as we understand, does not mean that Christ was uh, had, had personally a sinful nature or that he sinned, but that he was reckoned as a sinner. And in that uh, reckoning as a sinner, uh, that uh, ultimately led to... Uh, 
the awful culmination of his earthly ministry on the cross where he bore the wrath of our sins. Uh, and uh, so that when Paul, uh, when, when God raises Christ, that is God demonstrating uh, that there's the it is finished of the cross uh, is the case that sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. It has been accomplished. The wrath of the Father has been removed and satisfied, and Christ is now recognized in his uh, uh, identity as the last Adam, as the righteous one whose righteousness is imputed to us. Uh, adoption. Uh, key verse, 1 Corinthians, uh, excuse me, Romans 1, 4, in his resurrection, uh, it's a context, by the way, where Paul is, I like to put it in verses uh, uh, 3 and 4 of Romans 1, is providing a uh, the gospel in a nutshell, as it could be put. Uh, he says he was God in his resurrection. Christ was declared to be the son of God in power so that uh, the resurrection of Christ, not Christ was certainly God's son uh, before the resurrection uh, at the, at his baptism, uh, the vo heavenly voice uh, at the Jordan. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But in his uh, resurrection, uh, he was brought to a new and heightened status of sonship. He was son in a way that he was not before, as Paul says. He was adopted as the son of God in power, declared to be the son of God in power. Sanctification, um, as Paul says, uh, he died to sin. Uh, the effects of sin have no longer any effect on him, and he that's worked out in our lives as as believers, uh, as uh, we share uh, in uh, particularly the work of the Spirit in in uh, renovating and. Uh, sanctifying and, and, and delivering us more and more from uh, the effects of sin in our life. And then, of course, uh, I think glorification, uh, that's evident. The resurrection brought Christ from a state of humiliation uh, into a glorified state, a state of exaltation. So, yeah. Yeah, so there's this understanding, I think, as evangelicals were as I said before, we typically think of the gospel in substitutionary terms, which of course is accurate and super important um, and present in the New Testament. But Jesus doing things sort of in our place, um, taking our spot. Um, but what you're highlighting here is that Paul also has an understanding of Christ's representative function, that he actually undergoes these things um, and embodies them, we might say. That using justification as an example, ju uh, resurrection in the Old Testament was this end time category of, of what it, those who would be raised to glory, that is, like in Daniel 12, it was a vindication uh, that of their righteousness. And so for Christ to be resurrected, having been previously 
um, hung on a cross, uh, the curse of God, as Deuteronomy says, and as Paul says in Galatians 3, that, that sentence is then reversed. There's a vindication that happens. And in as much as he is justified um, and, and is the righteous one, as we are incorporated in him, we too are then justified, um, having that righteousness, as reformers would say, imputed to us through our union with Christ, ultimately. Um, and these yeah, other hey, realities, go I, ahead. I, I think you just said that better than I did. Thanks. <laughs> well, that's very that's very kind of you. Um, I've probably picked it up from you reading your book. So the other one, though, like sanctification, like he has died to sin, the power of sin, as Romans six says, and now he's raised to a, to newness of life that we experience in him. And so I think thinking of Christ's resurrection as this actual undergoing of these aspects of redemption in his own person as that representative final Adam then helps us understand that as we are united to him, we experience those things as well. We experience our adoption, our justification, our sanctification, ultimately when we're raised physically and totally renewed our own glorification. Um, you mentioned Romans. Uh, let me just mention too. I think uh, this isn't from the Dutch Reformed tradition, but another book that may be helpful here that I found helpful is Athanasius's On the Incarnation, where he talks a bit about uh, resurrection in these terms as well. And so I recommend that to hmm. readers as well. Um, you mentioned Romans uh, 1, 3, and 4. You also, in the book, you talk about Acts 13, 33, which is Paul speaking, Luke recording it. Um, this idea of Christ's appointment as son of God or as king, son of God being kingly language, from the Old Testament. I also found Doug Moo's commentary on Romans in for that verse in Romans 1. Even though our English translations say declared the Son of God, he argues the word would probably be better represented as appointed. I think a lot of our English translations say declare so as not to give off some sort of false adoptionist Christology where Christ becomes um, the Son of God in a in the sense of being God at his resurrection. But this idea of he argues that it's this appointment to be the son of God in the kingly sense, this exalt, exalt, shift from a state of humiliation to exaltation, as we talked before. But can you, um, and maybe you disagree with that, but can you talk to us a little bit more about those passages, Romans 1, 3 through 4, um, Acts 13, 33, where you argue Jesus's resurrection as related to that um, state of exaltation, maybe this idea of kingship? Um. Yeah, I'm not sure what the, the, the I can add to what to what you said on the point of the translation of the verb there. Uh, um, I I think it's uh, it's an effective declaration. Okay. Yeah. Because it's a res it's an it's it's what in other words Paul is saying the resurrection has a if I can put it with air quotes, a speaking effect, uh, and it's it's it it it's declarative in an effective way, which amounts to an appointment. So, um, yeah, I've I haven't been inclined to you know make a big battle about how to translate it there in in Rome because I think you end up with the same point. Okay, sure. That Christ became uh, as God's incarnate Son. It's so important to to always underline um, th that we're talking about 
Christ, the, the Son as he has become incarnate, uh, that is, in terms of having assumed a genuine human nature. We're not talking about any kind of, uh, as he is son from all eternity, we're not talking about any kind of change in his essential deity, but what is what uh, happens because of the human nature that he has assumed for our salvation, as the Nicene Creed says. Um, and um, so that um, there is this, you know, this progression from a state of humiliation to a state of exaltation uh, that Paul captures by be saying he became by the resurrection what he was not before, and that is... Uh, the powerful Son of God, uh, as you could also render the translation of Son of God in power. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 13, 4, he will, um, Paul will make the statement, he was uh, crucified out of weakness, but now lives by power. I'm not quoting it exactly on the spot, but uh, Christ was obviously, as uh, baptized with the Spirit, uh, he did all kinds of miracles in his earthly ministry. But Paul makes a comparative statement. When you compare who Christ is now as resurrected uh, and the power he now exercises as, I would say, the life-giving spirit, relatively speaking, his earthly ministry is marked by weakness, uh, which is another way of referring to a state of humiliation. Mm. So, um, yeah, it, uh, um, he, um, he is now the exalted king yeah. uh, because of his resurrection. And that seems to correlate then, too, to what we talked about before with the ministry of the Spirit, where Peter says in Acts, at Pentecost, Acts 2, that having been uh, you know, ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father, now he pours out the Spirit, that having himself entered into that state of existence, um, now he... Just, just on that point, uh, we should have pointed out, as you asked the question about Romans 1-4, uh, the resurrection has this declarative or appointive, appointing significance because, as Paul says, it's according to the Spirit of holiness mm -hmm. and that's a reference to the holy spirit so it's right there in roman keep in mind as i pointed out that paul is trying to give us an encapsulated um a statement of what the gospel is and that is that that effectiveness that that declaration or a appointment is because of the spirit's activity it's made very explicit there mm -hmm. but this relates then to what we talked about before where in as much as the spirit is also the one who raises christ from the dead and as christ then embarks into that uh resurrected existence the state of exaltation at pentecost he then pours out that same spirit on his followers as he um sort of uh then uniting him them in his own resurrection power mm -hmm. um 
I was also thinking while you're talking of Colossians, the Christ hymn in Colossians, where it talks about how Christ is the firstborn over creation, uh, not as some uh, heterodox groups would say, like he's the first created thing, but he's firstborn in the sense of preeminent over creation. As Paul goes on to say, he's the one through whom all things are created. But then in the second half of the Christ hymn, it talks about how he's the firstborn, same language, of the dead, this idea of he's the first one raised from the dead, and now he has preeminent over resurrection existence, over the new creation. So he's preeminent over the first creation, now he's preeminent over the second creation. And that would seem to map on to this idea of Christ's, uh, this idea of Christ's shift from the state of humiliation into the state of exaltation, um, and his, how that's linked with his enthronement and his authority and his kingship, that he's not only preeminent over creation as the one who created all things, but now he's preeminent over the new creation, uh, his kingdom, as the one who has pioneered it and embarked into it. Mm. I, um, I think you would, uh, go ahead. Could I just respond to that? Sure. Uh, great. Uh, I think the way you put it, uh, that the new creation is not a creation out of nothing, but it is the old creation that had become subject, or the original creation that had become subject to, uh, because of sin, subject to curse. It's 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 the original creation brought to its consummate eschatological perfection. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And 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 also, I think, uh, and this this bears on a very uh, you know, practical point about what this, uh, what the resurrection means. I think you want to connect firstborn from the dead in Colossians 1.18 with Romans 8.29, where uh, Paul says, in effect, that the ultimate goal of God's predestinating is that we be conformed uh, to the image of Christ, there's union with Christ, so that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that the that brings out again, you see the 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 adoptive, the familial, the union significance of of what uh, Christ's resurrection is all about, and and it's because he is now firstborn from the dead that he is the firstborn among many brothers. Our And our ultimate salvation is to be made like Christ in his glorified human nature. Yeah, which really brings us back to the theme of Christ as that second Adam to whom we are being conformed. Or as Paul says, that this that he uses this language of, our English translations oftentimes say new self or new man, but it could really be like the new humanity, more of a corporate reality as we are conformed to Christ, conformed into the likeness of of him. Um, Let me close with this question then. Uh, This podcast, as you know, is called Church Theology. The slogan or the tagline is theology on the church, for the church. And so with that in view, how does uh, Paul's theology of resurrection equip and empower the church for her mission? Well, um, uh, you're asking for a long sermon on this, <laughs> but uh, maybe I could, maybe I could focus it this way. We in in so much of our discussion, uh, 
we've drawn a connection between the resurrection and um the um and the and the holy spirit the work of the spirit and so uh i think the beginning and the first thing that i would want to say to the way you pose the question is to look at what we call uh the great commission matthew 28:19 uh the the church exists uh to disciple the nations uh baptizing uh and instructing uh all the christ commands but it's so important to recognize that that imperative uh is bookended by impair indicatives verse 18 um all power has been given to me in heaven and on earth that's what sanctions on the one side uh the marching orders of the church the great uh commission uh and it's important always see the ties in with what we've been talking about um of Christ doesn't say i have from all eternity power now that of course is true as he is uh as he's the divine son of god but here he's talking about a power he says all a power has been given to me he has in view a power that he at one point he did not have that he now has and that is of course what's just been described earlier in Matthew 28 because of the resurrection mm-hmm. and then you go to the other side the way of following uh the the great commission i am with you always to the end of the age and uh there uh we have to uh, i think we're we're bound to recognize how is christ with the church uh to the end of the age uh i think matthew 28:18 is in effect a promise of what's going to take place at pentecost and what will be true because of pentecost that christ the life-giving spirit will be with the church uh, uh until he returns and because of that the church will be effective uh in all of its aspects and calling everything that has to do with discipling uh in in all of its facets mm-hmm. and not only that but i think of ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones in ezekiel 37 where god shows ezekiel this vision of a valley full of uh, as dead as dead can be bones dry um and that is that is God says a a vision a, a an image a symbol of of Israel in exile dead to sin and and it would also be reflective of our own state apart from Christ and yet through the new covenant um, and what Christ has then achieved in His own resurrection imparting that life giving Spirit we are we should conceive of ourselves as former residents of that of that valley former residents of the Valley of Dry Bones who have now been brought out, have been raised. And so there's a an, an incredible transformative power at work in the church. And that is that we are united to a resurrected Christ. And so we should 
we can we can live and carry out our mission and our life in community with one another with great hope uh, of the transforming effect that Christ's resurrection can have on us now, presently, um, but also in the future, uh, what we ultimately await for. And so I think we go forward with this, this whole subject matter should really encourage us at what we are enabled to do in, tra- in, in seeking transformation in our own lives and that of others through the resurrection of Christ and his, uh, the, in the ministry of the Spirit that he gives us. Um, thanks so much for joining us again, Dr. Gaffin. It's been a pleasure to have you and be able to talk about these things. My privilege. <laughs>